The following podcast is presented by Pendant Services Incorporated, a company that provides contracted for administrative and back office support services to healthcare and senior living clients. These contracted for services are available to be utilized at the sole discretion of its clients. References in this podcast to the company and its activities, as well as terms such as we, us, it's, our, or similar terms are not meant to imply that Pennant Services Incorporated or the Pennant Group Incorporated has any direct operational control, supervision, or direction of the independently operated healthcare and senior living entities. Welcome to Believe, Behave, Become, a Pennant Group podcast. This podcast is a place where you will hear discussions about leadership concepts, experiences, and the application of principles that support the business affiliates of the Pennant Group. I am your host, Rich Lewis, and I'm really excited to spend time with you today. Probably more excited to spend time with our guest. Our guest is John Gochner. He is the Chief Operating Officer of the Pennant Group. And I often say the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Uh, John's a terrific partner, terrific human being, and incredibly bright and intelligent. And I'm excited that we have this opportunity to learn from him today. And John, we're talking about the partnership between the service center and the field and uh, our operating model and, and how the field and the service center um, will most effectively partner. So welcome, John. Well, Rich, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. I'm so excited about this podcast. I'm so excited about the opportunity to yeah. use this as a place to capture principles and to capture stories. Uh, I think one of the best ways that we learn as people, as humans, is through stories and experiences of others. And I'm excited about the topic today. I think one of the keys to our operating model, to the success that we've experienced and any success we will experience over the next decades um, is adherence to the principles behind our operating model. And, and one of those is this unique partnership that exists between the service center and the field. So I'm, I'm stoked to talk about that. And I know you'll have some perspective as well from your experience Absolutely. as an operator over the years. Yeah, that's great. You know, this concept is very unique to uh, the Pennant Group, the Ensign Group, uh, where we learned this concept and, and this model of operations. And we've boiled it down uh, and called it a shared ownership concept. So how would you describe this? Can you generally lay out what this looks like in form and function on a day-to-day? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that, Richard. It's, you know, I often, when I talk about shared ownership, I often tell a story that really goes back to uh, my childhood. So I grew up in a little town on the Snake River, Burley, Idaho. Uh, most of you, if you know me, you know that uh, because it's a fact that I, I it, where, where I come from is important to me. But one of the things that I loved about growing up there was in this beautiful valley, uh, there is a place where the Snake River widens from, you know, just a normal free flowing river. It's about almost half a mile wide, uh, you know, at least a quarter mile. I could be embellishing it because, you know, I grew up there as a kid and so it always feels big, but it's wide enough that it's almost like a lake. And one wow. of the most fun things to do, I would, I would work on the farm during the summer and then in the afternoons, every once in a while, my dad would give me time off to go down to the river with my friends and we would go wakeboarding and we would go tubing and we would wow. ride, uh, all, you know, just all of the, the fun activities that come with that. 
And one of my friends had this beautiful Malibu boat. And ever since then, I've always had this dream of owning a Malibu boat. And so when I think of shared ownership, I think of the idea of a group of us gathering together and saying, gosh, we'd all love to have this boat, but it's a $200,000 boat. And not one of us may not want to invest that much money in, a, in something we don't use all the time. So let's go in and buy a boat together. But as we buy that boat, there's, there's some things that we want to put in place at the beginning of that partnership of that relationship to make sure that the way the boat is used is, is most effective and results in the most kind of overall happiness for everyone. And, and I'll, I'll ask people, what do you think some of those things are? And, you know, they'll talk about, it may be, you know, re- direction on how to use the boat, who can use the boat. I, I always talk about my 16 year old son. He'd love to go take his friends out on the boat. Are we okay with that? Right. Yeah. Um, are we okay with him taking the boat out by himself and driving it and, and doing anything with it? What about a maintenance schedule? Right. How often should the boat be maintained and who's responsible for it? What happens if somebody breaks the boat, if something breaks on the boat? Right. And is, if that is a kind of from the way it was used, who's responsible for it? If it's just a kind of a natural thing that wears out over time, who's responsible for it? But what I think comes out of that conversation is this idea that when you own something uh, together, when you're all invested in it, you treat it a certain way. And if someone, if someone is entrusted with this boat, and so in our, in our context, the way that this kind of is, relates to the operation of our, our agencies and facilities in the Pennant Group is an executive director, a CEO, is entrusted with the keys to the boat. They get to use that boat all the time to- the primary operator. Yeah, they're the primary operator. They're the ones who gets to take it out with their family and to enjoy it. But there are other folks who own the boat. And if they operate that without regard for those people, without regard for mm-hmm. these, these rules that maybe have been set or these, these principles that we've all agreed are important to the operation of the boat, first, they're not going to have as much success as they could. They're not going to reach their potential. But second, they're going to disregard um, the opportunity to allow other owners to help them get extraordinary results. And that's, that's where, when you've got resources, resources see things, they're highly trained, they're mm-hmm. passionately committed to results, and they are, their job is to look at things through the lens of their training. So if you've got an HR resource, they're looking and they're seeing where your interactions with employees, your, the way that you are uh, facilitating those relationships, are they leading to turnover? Are they leading the things that are going to harm your agency? And I kind of liken these to the rocks that might be under the water while you're driving that boat. And uh-huh. if you, you miss the red flags that those resources raise, you might drive that boat up on the rock and you might, you might harm the boat, not just for you and your family, but for all the other shared owners. And right. so being willing to hear others and then make decisions that will maximize the utility of that boat, or in the in in this case, the operation. That's really at the heart of what we do, and it's at the heart of our model because we don't believe that uh, this is really about one genius who runs something. It's really about a level five leader is someone who harnesses the power of shared owners 
and uses it to make decisions that create value and that create an experience that can't be experienced somewhere else. And, and so that's the, that's kind of the analogy that I try to use when teaching this concept of shared ownership. You have the keys to the boat as the CEO, you are the final decision maker. But if you don't look for those red flags, there's a lot of ways to drive that boat into the rocks or yeah. to, to miss out on opportunities. You may not be even be aware that if you continue up a canyon, there's another area where you could have great water skiing or wakeboarding or whatever you might want to do. And if you will engage others, your cluster partners, your resource partners, then you get the opportunity to realize the full benefit of having the keys to that boat. Wow, that's an incredible analogy and uh, very relatable. Um, I see the power of having people with your your operations interest at the very core of their interest and them continually looking for ways to support you and your leadership through the challenges and struggles, the ceilings that we constantly butt up against, having the power of a group like that, that does not have an agenda outside of what do you need uh, is incredibly powerful. And I've not heard of this model outside of pennant group, ensign group, obviously where we come from. Um, what, what needs to be in place in order for this model to be as fruitful and, and successful as we all hope it is? Yeah, that's, that, that's a really great question, Richard. And I, I appreciate what you say about this. This model is our secret sauce. And sometimes yeah. when we're talking to uh, investors or we're talking to sellers and we talk about this and they're like, wait a minute. So these cluster partners are tied together financially but they actually care about each other. They actually want to help each other to succeed rather than be competitive and just, you, you don't pit people against each other. The it's model creates firm. an opportunity for them to work together collaboratively to achieve things that they couldn't do yeah. on their own. And, and I do think it's a unique um, method and model for motivation because I, I, I know I am made better by partners who I know care about me. So when you think of, what has to be in place in order for that to happen? I think one of the first things is trust. There has to be a, and a belief that that person cares about you and your success, that they aren't doing, they aren't raising that red flag because they want to stop you from achieving your goal. In fact, they're raising that red flag so that you can achieve your goal by going around those rocks or going up through that a different canyon to get to the next spot on the road that you're trying to get to. And so that, that first step, it, it takes trust and it takes knowing, uh, it, it, it often takes time. Trust often takes time. It often takes time spent on the phone, time spent in mm -hmm. person, whatever it might be, but the opportunity to know, Hey, this person knows me. They're aware of my family situation. They're aware of the, the things in my plus one that matter to me in life. And they care about me. They care about the organization. And their goal is to help me produce results that will create value. Because when you think of resources, Richard, you know, one of the unique mm -hmm. things about them is our resources are 
dedicated. They have dedicated their professional lives to the success of their field partners. That's, yeah. that's the structure of the model. The Isn't way they measure their success is whether or not we produce life-changing clinical, financial, community, and cultural results. And if, if you've dedicated yourself to that proposition, that means you've taken a, a willingness, a belief that you, if you're affiliated with the right leaders in the field, if you in, entrust the right CEOs, you're going to be part of something really special. But you, you have to do that through level five leadership. You have to do it through persuasion and education because those people don't report to you in the typical corporate model that most healthcare organizations operate, where the legal team sits next to the CEO chair and they kind of dictate what has to happen. Our model is different than that. And I think it's what makes it special. It's this concept of being field driven, this idea that our field operators best know what needs to happen for the, the community that they serve. And then these resource partners who act as peers to help them navigate the difficult situations and pull the right levers to get there. Yeah. I'm glad that you touched on what is often more of the more normal corporate construct where there is a huge, massive corporate office somewhere and all of the departments that we have, legal, compliance, HR, uh, all of those teams that are sitting in our service center in a normal construct, they're going to have their own goals and agenda that they're driving for um, because they have their careers and their department's performance in mind. And that is very different where, and, and as you outlined, their success is simply the success of the field is life-changing service being delivered on a, on a broad level in every market, every cluster, every agency that we have, that is the agenda. And I feel like this is one of the more difficult concepts for new leaders in our organization to wrap their heads around. Uh, our model is very attractive to people that have worked oftentimes many years in traditionally you know, corporate constructs. And so there's this period of decorporatizing that oftentimes new leaders have to go through. How do you see the best way possible to kind of shake off um, beliefs and habits, you know, that have originated from a traditionally corporate structure as a new leader comes into our organization? What's the best way to, uh, to adjust to that, to this new, this new normal for them? I think that the best, the best thing you can do is open your mind and your heart to the idea that this model creates opportunities for people to care about each other and to be interested and to be focused and to measure themselves by the success of others. And that's a very different it's a very different construct and it often takes a lot of time to create that level of trust with the organization and be open to that. Mm. And I don't think that that's bad. I think we all have to go through a process where we come to fully trust the organization and that the people in it are, are truly focused on nothing but our success. 
And I think it's easy to look for ways where we're failing to live Mm -hmm. the principles or where an individual is failing to live the principles and to say, ha, I see it. We say this, but we don't mean it. And and I don't think that's true. I, I think what happens is we are, as an organization, committed deeply to these principles. And sometimes we fail. And the question is, and sometimes we as individuals fail, sometimes I fail. And and the question is, when we do that, do we give up? Do we just say, that's who we are now? Or do we continue to strive? Do we recognize when we've made a mistake? Do we acknowledge it? Do we own it? And do we fail forward? And the next time we we behave differently, more consistent with our principles, more consistent with our um, with our culture. And when you're a new leader coming in, you're going to experience some failure, whether that's in being willing to be vulnerable with your cluster partners, whether it's in accepting feedback from a resource, whether it's per- worth your own team in trying to engage them and involve them and create a true first team that can help drive your operation forward you'll have opportunities where you will experience failure. And if you're open enough and vulnerable enough to realize that in in this organization, there is space for us to fail. There's space for us to fail an opportunity to fail forward. And you'll take that opportunity and you'll embrace it and you'll get back on the bull and ride it. Uh, You'll have a life-changing experience. And I think that's the... That's the pennant experience to me is this coming to a point in your professional life where you recognize that this organization isn't about uh, portraying something. It's not about telling a certain story. It's about how do we continually improve in our ability to deliver tremendous clinical, financial, cultural, community results, all while balancing that with our plus one. And if, if you can get to that point where you are the hard driving, ambitious, uh, extraordinary leader that you are, that's why you're in the seat. That's why you are, were chosen to be part of this team. Only the best get these opportunities. Right. And you'll take that and you'll bind to it this willingness to be introspective and to see where you felt come up short and to look for feedback and seek it from partners and then take it and implement it and fail forward you'll have a you'll have a life-changing experience and and that to me is is at the heart of the shared ownership construct it's at the heart of the organization um it's our lifeblood and if we do it well um and if we continually improve our model will yield extraordinary results it's it's been proven over decades in inside of enzyme inside of penna yeah yeah it has the, the model has has been thoroughly tested stress tested and proven i think in every way one can think of uh and so it endures <laughs> um you you speak about this concept of failing forward we talk about this a lot in in our uh clusters and on our market meetings um, just, I'm drawing upon an experience from the past, uh, as I think about a time when I successfully failed forward, I've had a lot of failures as an operator in a home health and hospice space. 
And sometimes I wasn't even aware <laughs> that I failed until a resource helped me to see. Um, but there's this one incident in particular um, where I was trying to uh, create a new program and a new service line, and it just wasn't going well. And, and I had clearly missed a lot of steps in creating this program uh, to the degree that it was now a financial drag on the overall agency. And it was, it was at that time, I think I really saw the value in a couple of critical resource partners that, that I had developed relationships with. And they, because of their perspective, it being at a higher level and they weren't so far in the weeds of my operation, they were able to provide me some incredible insight into what I missed opportunities to improve on things that were already going well um, and and help me to do an overall assessment and redesign. And from that, we truly failed forward. It was not my cluster partners in this regard, in this instance, that helped me to uh, make course corrections and get on the right track. And it was at that time, I really saw the power of this model. Um, but I had to seek them. I think that's a really critical uh, element of this partnership. Uh, why does the field, John, have to go after the resources, so to speak? I mean, they're there, they're, they're ready and waiting. But why do we direct in the field the service center efforts? When you think of the service center, there's there's three we, ways by which our service center partners measure their success. Um, the first is accelerating the results of the field. The second is their stewardship over the publicly traded company, the Pennant Group. Right. And then the third is creating an extraordinary employee experience, which every leader in our organization is responsible for. Mm -hmm. That second one is a demanding part of who we are. It's what enables us to ensure that we have capital to fund our acquisitions and growth and turn operations that are struggling. It's also what enables us to share equity and share ownership, which is our, uh, our core value uh, in Caplico. And there's a lot of responsibilities that resources have that are connected to that. But the first responsibility that every resource has in this company even, and I would say that goes so far as to go to, to Justin Call, who leads our SEC reporting. And that's his, uh, his fundamental responsibility is to make sure that we file on time and He's that we file as far accurately. away from the employee experience as you can get, right? It, it, well, it, it's at least, it, it's, it's definitely a step removed from the field, but sure. even he has that responsibility to help accelerate the results of the field, because that is the first mission of the service center. And when you think of the way that um, a service center or a, a corporate headquarters operates where initiatives come down from mm -hmm. the, uh, from that headquarters to mm -hmm. the field that, that really takes the intelligence and the wisdom of that group. And it elevates it above those who are out in the field, doing the work, providing life-changing service at the patient's bedside. And that's one way to operate. And it cannot, it can be very effective from a compliance standpoint. Sure. Uh, it can be very effective from a, a kind of keeping things in a box standpoint. Yeah. Many controls in that. 
Yeah, there's many controls. There's a lot of internal kind of controls that exist in that form format. But what's different about our model is that we truly believe that local leaders are best positioned to understand the needs of their employees, their patients, and the communities that they serve. And so if they truly embrace that, that empowered opportunity, and this is the difference I think between a CEO and an ED. Uh, A CEO is constantly looking at the community at the different level levers that are available to them in all three of those areas, in how they take care of their patients or residents, in how they treat their employees, in how they impact the community and the overall culture that they're creating. And they're constantly looking for ways to improve. And when you harness that willingness to look at things through those lenses, Mm -hmm. through that broad lens, and then you combine it with the expertise of these incredibly smart and well-trained resources who have dedicated their lives to in-home care and a senior living, uh, then you get the power to, uh, of leverage that doesn't exist in the opposite form. You get the power of creativity, uh, the power of collaboration. Whereas a leader, instead of feeling like I'm just executing on someone else's obligation, you know, someone else's view, it's, I, uh, I get the opportunity to set a vision and I have all of these people who have unique specialized training, whether it's clinical or legal or HR or finance or collections, whatever it might be, they can help me execute it. But where we sometimes where, where we sometimes have issues in the organization, I think, is when we allow there to be a gap where everybody kind of feels like it's the other party's job. And we've had historical situations like this. When, when we were a very young organization, we had a, a gap from a collection standpoint. We didn't have a lot of resources and everything, you know, it was kind of the responsibility of the field, but we didn't have the right expertise to support it. And so we had this gap where it was like, we're doing everything we can. We're working so hard in the field, but we don't have the right resource support. We don't have the right expertise to answer these questions and actually move things forward. And so we spin our wheels a lot and we spun our wheels and we wrote off a lot of money because we couldn't collect. And the way we, we fixed that, we got the right resources with the right expertise and the right experience. And they provided a a BAM agenda and a set of reports and a set of tools that then operators could use and teams, their internal billing teams could use to go through and change their result. And, and that's a, that's an inspiring thing. Sometimes we've had situations where, where we've allowed that gap to persist over time. Sometimes I think of, I think of some examples on the clinical side where Mm -hmm. everybody kind of wants to believe the inspection is somebody else's job. Right. And sometimes that means that, you know, we, we have our, our CML group, we have our service center, clinical resources, we have our field DCSs. And there's been times where it's been kind of like, Hey, we do, we, we're going to do what we want to do over here. And well, they're, they, they get to make the decision. So they're going to do what they want to do over there. And, and in that space, that's the opposite of shared ownership. That's siloing. And we've seen the results of what happens when things get siloed, because mm. when we have a healthy tension that exists, where the resources feel like it's their, uh, that, that they're going to be measured based on those results. And the field knows that they're going to be measured based on those results, that gap or those silos collapse 
and you have a healthy tension that exists where uh, as a, as a CML or a service center clinical resources resource, I feel the same accountability over a market's clinical results that those DCSs in the market feel or those EDs in the market feel. And, and so I'm going to push them. I'm going to hold them accountable. And, and when we have that, when that healthy tension exists, we call it the 40-40. When both parties are engaged at the same level, we've gotten away from this principle of, hey, the service center dictates what we do and it's going to all be the same and everything's going to look the same. And we've gotten away from the principle that I have ultimate decision-making power, so I don't care what you have to say, resource. And we've right. entered a zone where a healthy tension can exist, where both parties feel responsible for results. And that push, when they push on each other in the right way, in a healthy way, in a respectful way, but in a way that creates additional peer accountability, that's what produces magic. That's what produces results that can't be achieved in that typical corporate hierarchical structure, because then you're doing things because someone told you to do them. And here you're doing things on both sides of that ledger because you know it's what will help us achieve extraordinary results. Yeah. You speak of the 40-40. I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, we've often illustrated the service center field partnership through this idea of a 40-40. And for those looking for a visual, um, <clears throat> the first visual to get is a football field, right? So we're talking about a 40-yard line on one side of the field and a 40 yard line on the other in, in this, in this 40, 40 concept, where does the magic happen? Is it, is it between the forties? Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, John? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to Richard. And I think this is probably the, the analogy or the principle that I get the most questions on and, sure. and it's probably an imperfect analogy. Okay. Um, but the idea is that when you think about if you've, if you've got a football field and you've got two teams that are playing, there is, um, a space where the way that those teams work together or, or collaborate together, um, is going to produce different results. And so if you have one group of people and, and I'll often have, when I'm, I do this with people, when I do this in a live training, I'll often have two groups and have them stand at a comfortable distance apart. Mm -hmm. And we'll call that the 40-40. And we'll have them talk. And they're able to have a comfortable conversation with each other. Yeah. Then we'll have them uh, go all the way to the far edges of the room. And we'll have them talk. And, and you can guess what happens, right? It's very hard to communicate when you're all the way across the room and you're yelling to each other, but you can't always hear everything. And it's, it's really uncomfortable. And so we have them come back into the middle of the room and we have them stand nose to nose. It's very uncomfortable. Hopefully everybody brush your <laughs> teeth and is chewing gum. Um, but it, it, but they try to talk dead. And, yeah. it, and again, it creates a little bit of discomfort. And so the, the idea is where, where does real collaboration, where does real communication, where does real listening occur? And it's, it's not if both parties kind of retreat to the far side of the field and they're doing their own th thing and the resources are like, well, we have to do internal controls and we have to be responsible for making sure things get filed on time. We have to make sure the risk is managed and we're going to just do it all because we don't, we don't, the, we aren't getting engagement from the field. Mm -hmm. And if the field is over here, like 
hey, I don't really care about the perspective of that resource. I'm going to fire who I want to fire when I want to fire them. And I'm going to hire who I want to hire when I want to hire them. And I'm going to do a program <laughs> regardless of what the, the regulatory restrictions are. I'm just going to start it. Uh, and, and I'm don't, you know, I'm sure we'll figure out the licensure. Right. And, and what you get is you don't get good results, right? No. You, you never get good results in that situation. And sometimes you get a scenario where one side is pushing the other side back. And so in the service center, if the service center is the one then you created a typical corporate hierarchical organization where right. basically the service center dictates what happens and you as a CEO or an executive director, you're kind of left back there just cowering and saying, okay, whatever, whatever. I just have my list of things to do today. HR said, I need to do this. Legal said, I need to do this. Clinical said, I need to do this. And, and guess what? At the end of the day, I did everything they asked me and my results sucked. Right. And, and you feel like a victim, right? Because you, you are. You've, you're, yeah. you've allowed yourself to be put in this, that situation. Uh, on the other hand, you get a situation where the field completely disregards what the resources have to say. The field is pushing kind of the resources back and we get situations where we have a lack of compliance, where we have um, the risk of overpayments, where we have, uh, we create risk for the organization. Um, and, and that's no better of a situation. Right, it, it, you you disregard all of this professional expertise that exists literally to serve you and to mm. help you accomplish your goals. But if both of those parties come to the middle and both of them feel accountability over results, not in an overbearing nose to nose, you you've got to do it, you know, this way and this is the only way, but rather they have a f- conversations, real conversations where we examine problems because ultimately that's what we're here to do. We're here to solve problems. We're here to find mm-hmm. solutions to what are in some cases kind of intractable problems in the healthcare system. Yeah. But in any case, operational problems that are real and that exist and that involve people's lives and involve whether we can continue to employ people, whether we can continue to um, provide them cost of living increases by managing, by being disciplined so we can be generous. Uh, and, and when you you get people to that space that we call the 4040. Um, that's when real listening happens. And that's when you get the benefit of CEOs and executive directors who have a broad view of what their community needs, who understand deeply what is happening with their clinicians. What, what struggles are they having with home care home base? Home care home base or, or, or PCC can look perfect when they demo it. But down in the field, it can be painful, right? I was just, uh, I was meeting with our provider services team this week and they were showing me some of the issues that come up with the software they're using. And literally we have providers, NPs, we have medical assistants, we have our resources, and they are just sitting there waiting for something in the computer so they can process a referral. And mm. that's, that's when it's, it's not working. That's a problem. We got to mm-hmm. solve it. And they can try to solve it themselves or they can involve our technical experts to figure out a resolution to make sure that the experience of our boots on the grounds team as represented by the knowledge of our operators and the technical expertise of our professional IT team and EMR teams that are trained to resolve these problems, that they coalesce to solve the problem and get us to a point where we can provide better care and more care to more people. And, and that's the, 
that's ultimately the reality of what makes this partnership work is when there is two parties that are willing to hear each other, to recognize that there are problems, that the system isn't perfect. And, and I'm sorry, I keep using the system. This is just one example. We could talk about an example from every department, but there's issues with the system. There's also reasons why the system matters. And ultimately we've got to use it properly and well. And that's, that's where that 4040 exists is where you can take ideas and you can bat them around and you can learn from them so that we can get better results. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. We've, I think we've uncovered a lot already and there's m- much more to go. So um, if you don't mind me asking a couple questions, John, um, when it comes to the three focuses of the service center, one of them being creating an, an employee experience, um, a life-changing employee experience, which is something that I think you, you had mentioned all leaders in our organization are responsible for doing. How, how does the service center impact that employee experience when the employee experience is very much driven at the local level and most of our employees are not interfacing with resource professionals? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that. First, the the reason the service center, one of the, the missions of the service center is to create an extraordinary experience for resources, right? And that's the responsibility of the leaders of those teams. Another is ultimately the service center exists to support our operations in accomplishing our four our four cornerstones or our four keystones. When you mm-hmm. think of uh, both cornerstone and pinnacle, this idea of producing excellent clinical compliance, financial, community, and cultural results. And so measuring the employee experience across the board is something that is all of our responsibility. And so when we think of kind of, okay, what is the service center's part in that? Ultimately, the service center is going to help as as you go through the AIT or or we call it a CIT, a CEO and training program Mm -hmm. that you're probably a part of right now. Um, And this is something that you're engaged, that's something that is supported by the service center. It's driven by your market leaders and the president of our segments, and it's supported by the service center. So it starts there. It starts in helping make sure that you have the tools that you need as a leader. Um, and the truth is we all come from diverse backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I came to this organization from a law firm. It, the, one of the things that are as lowest on the list at the law firm is management techniques or how to help inspire people. Really the inspiration is work harder, bill more hours. If you do, we'll give you a little bit more money. And that's the, that's the tool that is the age old tool of the law firm. And, and so when I got here and I realized that ultimately life's about people and it's about how do we inspire people? How do we motivate people? How do we help people accomplish their, their vision for themselves? How do we help them improve and have a better life. And that's our for our patients and residents, but it's also for our people. And when you think of your responsibilities as a leader, one of the most critical ones is how do you help people reach their potential? And, and that requires you to dig deep. Some of you probably came in with loads and loads of experience and training in that. Others may have come from a more technical background like the yeah. law or accounting or some, some other background like that where 
managing people hasn't been something you spend a lot of time with. Right. But regardless, as you go through that CIT program, hopefully you're getting support in developing your leadership skills and attributes. Hopefully you're reading books that cause you to be introspective about how to lead, how to inspire confidence and how to help people reach their potential. Um, as you go along, you're going to have situations, no, even if you, the best EDs we ever have, uh, the best CEOs in this organization still have situations where employees don't perform. Um, mm -hmm. You can inspire, you can motivate, but ultimately people choose. And so there's going to be complex interactions that you have with employees. And one of the things that our HR team is so well-versed in is how to handle those situations in a way that reduces risk, that makes sure people are treated fairly, and that leaves you in a situation where you can continue to inspire confidence and motivate uh, your team. And, and that's, that's another example of kind of how the service center is jointly responsible with the field. And we measure their success based on what our turnover percentage is. So right. you're measured by that in your field, in your operation, yep. in your facility, and your service center partners in the HR team are measured by that as well. And that's what creates that, that joint accountability. And that's why when your HR partner calls and tells you or sends you a scoreboard that shows that you're performing well, not performing well, I hope you're viewing that as a red flag that's warning you of rocks ahead and warning you that, hey, I may need to take a different course of action. I may need to behave differently so that I can become the leader that I want to become, the CEO that I want to become, the, um, the, the person that I want to become. And so I, I think that's kind of where you see that play out, Richard, is the service center. And there's, there's lots more examples, right? But I think uh, those are a couple of examples of the way the service center helps support the field in accomplishing the goal of creating an amazing employee experience. Ultimately, that comes back to leaders mm -hmm. um, in our model, and it comes back to um, navigating difficult, complex situations in a way that inspires trust and confidence in the organization. Yeah. You know, the, your words bring to mind um, a time when <clears throat> me and my leadership team were reviewing uh, the semi-annual employee survey results for our operation. And it took about 12 seconds for everybody reading the report to become very deflated. There was a lot of feedback that was difficult to hear and digest and a lot of feedback that was difficult to um, problem solve around and, and generate creative solutions to address. And, and I remember reaching out to some of our HR resources and they were so eager uh, to come alongside, not just me as the ED, but the entire leadership team. And we discussed the results. We put together a plan. Uh, we implemented the plan. And it wasn't perfect at first. But then we came back. We made another iteration. And we through those adjustments, we actually ended up deciding to take a course of action that even most other agencies didn't. We actually increased uh, the frequency in which we surveyed our staff. Uh, and, and then we did some other things as well. And it was incredible that the next survey was better. The survey after that was better and again and again. And and it was it's a true testament to that 40-40 principle that you're talking about.
we got feedback. We didn't know exactly what to do with it. We have experts sitting at the service center, so eager to help us. And they did. And it was meaningful and the model worked. Uh, and, and I was so inspired by that. And of course, we were so appreciative of the support that received. You know, Richard, that, that highlights one of the points that we try to emphasize with resources, and that is this idea of data, not direction. So the idea that if you produce and you give people clarity on where they stand and sit, that, mm-hmm. that, and then you give them support in identifying the tools and solutions that can help them improve, they'll do it. And I think that, mm-hmm. that example illustrates that perfectly. The idea of, you know, getting your employee engagement survey results, being disappointed and saying, how are we going to fail forward? And then using and leveraging the support from your resource teams to uh, develop a plan and executing on that plan. And I hope there was continued involvement from the resources in checking in and seeing how things were going and um, offering additional solutions. Um, but that that's exactly that principle. We're, we're not, we hope that resources will continuously seek to provide the transparent data that will drive change. And then we hope that clusters will embrace that data, will review it, will challenge each other on it, and will make sure that there's accountability around that change. So you get that, you get that support from both sides, from your cluster, from your market, and from the service center. That's terrific. I'd like to ask you, John, your thoughts on um, the path to CEO as it relates to the service center and field partnership. When I think about a CEO, uh, one of the core functions is to um, kind of organize and deploy capital resources, uh, whether they be human capital, uh, cash, whatever it is. I'd like to hear if you've got an example of of a CEO or two uh, that partnered well in a way that was meaningful and probably made the difference operationally in their results that propelled them forward to achieve the results that a CEO would achieve, that a CCO would achieve, that a CMO would, would achieve. Do you have any examples that come to mind with with how those resources have been utilized? Yeah, I think an essential part of becoming a CEO is knowing how to orchestrate resources effectively, is knowing how when you're faced with a difficult challenge um, to be able to draw in shared owners. So we have a natural tendency, I think, to kind of when something goes wrong, there's a natural tendency to sort of scurry under the table and hide and feel like, okay, I've got to fix this myself so that I can show people that it's fixed. I created it, my mess. Yeah. I got to fix it. it. And and that's the, that is the wrong approach, right? Because you get this opportunity as a leader in our organization to acknowledge and own the failure, but also to draw in help and support from other shared owners. And that's an essential component to being a CEO is using effectively uh, resources. Um, one of the, I think one of the really unique, uh, examples of this, uh, Adam bone and, and Jesse Alande up in, uh, Sacramento mm-hmm. did an amazing job when they first got started of using our clinical support and drawing in help in establishing their programs. And those are, those are two leaders with 
uh, a lot of individual motor and capacity. Mm -hmm. But rather than saying, this is ours, we're going to do it all by ourselves, they invited others to own their operation. And they invited those, those clinical partnership from Bill Bradley and Holly Kiley and some of our other resources um, to join them in that pursuit and to challenge them. And what it did was it, it made them better. And that's the, that's at the kind of heart of becoming a CEO in our organization is being willing to draw in and say, I know my operation is going to be better when there's more people that own it rather than mm -hmm. less. It's not mine, it's ours. And I think that's it. That's right at the heart. So I think, I think Jesse is a good example and our, uh, Jesse and Adam are good examples of that in Sacramento. Um, but I think it's happened over and over again. When you think of some of the challenges Travis Jones faced at Kinder Hearts from a collection <laughs> standpoint and the way that he rallied the resource team, brought different groups to bear um, in order to address that, it's a, it's a great example of how to orchestrate resources. Um, I think there's, there's also situations where we, uh, where the opposite is true, right? Where we have instead turned inward instead of looking outward. And as you consider your path to CEO, I would just invite you to recognize that your quickest path to get there is to invite others to connect with your agency, to invite them, those resources. Like I said at the beginning, they have dedicated their professional life to your success. If you'll embrace that and you'll invite them to be part of that, you'll share your agency swag with them or you'll yeah. um, invite them to be on calls where you talk about results. Maybe some who are incredibly close to situations you invite to be part of celebrations. You, you invite them to be owners of your agency and they'll feel it deep down. And that's, that's was my experience. I started my career as a resource at the Pennant Group. And, mm -hmm. and in that role, when a leader would invite me to be part of the conversation, and, and Richard was a great example of this, I think Richard and Brent were the two leaders who probably called me more than anyone else to <laughs> talk about ideas, to talk about ways they were looking for solutions to the, the problems that they were facing in their community. And some of those ideas were, were not good ones. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, and, but what I, what I truly, and, and many of them were extraordinary and have changed the face of this whole organization. And what I loved about it was I felt like a partner, not just a, a legal partner, not just someone who could help them, whether it was with their bad debt calculator or with their, their contract or whatever it might be. But I felt like a partner who was drawn in, who was part of the solution, part of the, the team that was figuring out how do we win in Denver? How do we win in, uh, in Southern Utah? And when you get a resource who feels that way, they're going to work night and day to support you. They're going to work night and day to try to get you to yes. And the answer mm -hmm. sometimes will still be no, because that's what you've got to expect of your resources is to hold you accountable when the idea is bad, to pressure test those ideas so that the ones that you actually spend your valuable time on are ones that are really worth your valuable time. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there's, there's incredible power if you're looking to be a CEO in inviting that ownership from resources as well as your cluster and market partners. Yeah. 
you make me think of the principle of firing bullets before cannonballs. And I hadn't thought of how, um, how poised our resource group is in helping calibrate the trajectory of those bullets. Right. I, I hadn't thought of that in that way before, but um, they really are in an incredible position. You know, they're almost the they're almost the one sitting next to the sniper with the binoculars in the field, you know, and looking down and saying, you know, make sure you don't miss this. Make sure yeah, you don't a little miss bit this. to the left. The wind is blowing from left to right, you know, make the proper adjustments. It's a great uh, analogy, Richard. I, I think that is uh, that's at its heart what you have the benefit of. And, and if you're out there and you you're you don't take advantage of that, right? If you're the soldier who's just like, I got this, mm-hmm. you're going to miss out on calibrating those things. Um, and we have, you know, there's oodles and oodles of examples of, of this, but I think one of them is um, approaching CONs in Washington, where calibrating that with the support of the resource team has, ex- has allowed Alpha to get started with hospice. It's allowed mm-hmm. the, uh, Puget Sound to get hospice started. And, and those were things that without the support of the resource team, we, we wouldn't have gotten done. We wouldn't have been able to accomplish. But the field is a unique capacity to identify where a need exists, coupled with the service center and the startup team's capability to do a very complex process that we had to beat out you know, tens of other competitors, mm-hmm. allows us to pull these levers and, and start. And so if you're thinking of kind of innovation in particular, right? And, and I'm always... I'm a big proponent of innovation because I think our most innovative leaders are those leaders who over time achieve the most success. That doesn't mean that they get distracted, but it means that they're constantly looking at their community, at their team and thinking, how do we improve? How do we differentiate ourselves? How do we do, how do we ultimately accomplish our goal of providing life-changing service with uh, in different ways, relationships with payers, risk-based relationships, provider services, different ways that we can differentiate ourselves in the community. And what you see is those, those leaders are the ones who also reach out and pressure test those ideas. Mm-hmm. They get their resource that's sitting next to them, looking through the binoculars to give them the trajectory so that they can make the shot. And, and that's a powerful example of where our model thrives is when we invite those, the perspective and benefit of the lens through which resources see things. And then ultimately, uh, we orchestrate them to accomplish our goals in the field. That's, that's terrific. John, you've shared so many valuable insights. Your experience is so beneficial uh, to current and existing leaders, as well as future leaders joining our group. And I'm really grateful for our time spent today. I think my key takeaway, and if it's different from yours, please share yours. But I think my key takeaway is invite more owners and invite those owners from the service center ranks and, and you will accelerate your results. I think if if each of our leaders, if you view that as part of your path to CEO, if you measure yourself by that, um, you will have a a different experience than if you try to do it all yourself. And it will be more rewarding and it'll be fulfilling because you'll create relationships 
with mm-hmm. a broad and diverse set of owners across the organization who have perspectives like Jamie Noel Smith, who uh, brought so much as, as I've spent time in operations and, and she's brought so much from a clarity standpoint on the financials. You have resources, whether it's it's someone who is relatively new to the organization, like a Liz Sonicstein or, a, or who's been here forever, like an Elliot McMillan, inviting those individuals and asking for their perspective and the benefit of their wisdom, you'll, you'll have relationships that matter to you in addition to the wisdom and guidance that comes from, um, from partnering with experts in their field. And I think when you think of, uh, of takeaways for this, I hope your, your construct is, I am an empowered local leader who has the ability to make ultimate decisions, but I have shared owners who are committed to my success and who trust me, but will inspect my work. They'll give me data. They will help me when they see that I'm going off course, they'll raise the red flag. And my choice is, do I, do I listen? Do I engage? Do I push back? Do I, am I vulnerable enough to accept feedback? And when we do those things, we, we will succeed. It's been proven over and over again. Uh, and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity we've had today, Richard, to sit down and talk about these things. Uh, I think, I think some of these principles are right at the heart of our model. They're right at the heart of our recipe for success. Um, so thanks for having me. Thank you, John. It's been a great episode to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for supporting this. Thank you for investing in, in your education, um, engaging in that passion for learning. And I hope you'll tune in to future podcast episodes. Thanks. Bye-bye.